Welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio, the one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. I can't even believe that a month of the new year has already gone by because everyone, you know, at the end of the year, they say, God, I can't believe it's New Year's already and it's the holidays and that type of stuff. And I did a post the other day on LinkedIn and I was reminding us all that like one twelfth of the year has already gone by. And I was saying that there's kind of three types of people in the world, which is there's there's those that set their goals in the beginning of the year and they're tracking towards success and working on those goals. There's those people who set their goals and they're kind of uh, back to how things were and maybe off course. So good reminder to think about what you're trying to achieve this year and get back on course. And I hope you are not number three, which is you didn't set any goals or direction for yourself. And uh, it's time to start working on that. I, you know, I, I wouldn't obsess about goals, as I like to say, but at least have a direction for yourself. And, and one of the things that I wanted to do on the podcast this year was to bring you guys a little bit more diversity because when I meet you in person, especially for the listeners that I've never met before or even those that I have, and you share with me that one of the things you like is the diversity of Demand Gen Radio and want more of that. So I've had some sales leaders on recently uh, and I've got some authors that are coming up. And today I invited Tim Reseter, who is the Chief Strategy Officer uh, and research officer at Corporate Visions. And if you don't know Corporate Visions, we'll talk about them in just a minute. But first, Tim, thank you for joining me in this early part of the year and getting on the program so we can talk about messaging and personalization and some other great stuff uh, that, that I know that we're both very passionate about. How are you? I'm great, David, and thanks for having me. I'm a fan of the book and the webcast and the podcast you do. So um, we might be fanboying each other today, but it's a, a, a wonderful opportunity, so thanks for having me. Cool. Now, are you are you one, two, or three? Did you set goals and you're tracking? Did you set goals and you're <laughs> off course, or have you or have Can you I not set those goals my yet? Goals by personal and professional. <laughs> I am much better at setting my business goals and objectives for the year and creating themes and research priorities and chugging through those than maybe you know hanging on to my diet goals. Um, but yes, so far so good. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm with you. If, if you don't have a mark that you're trying to achieve, what, what kind of plans can you even put in place? Cause you, you don't even know where you're, you're, you're going. Right. So all goodness. And thanks for reminding us. Yeah. I, you know, I, I started my career at Microsoft and I was there for a couple of years. And the, what's interesting, Tim, is the very first class that I took the training that they flew me up to Redmond, Washington was on, they didn't call it time management, they called it priority management. And the very first page almost of that training class had this wheel of life, and it was what you wanted to accomplish in your life. So I'm like 22 years old, first training class at Microsoft, you know, first job out of college, and the very first thing I'm learning is to map out the goals and plans and direction for your life, which was really cool. And I'm glad I started there. And it has stuck with me. So I've written down my personal goals and career goals um, forever. And, uh, you know, and forever meaning since I started my career. And it helps. And But what I've learned over time, like I said, is I try not to get too obsessed with, like, the goals. You, you talked about fitness. And I noticed I, I belong to a peer group, a uh, group called Vistage. And all the execs in that program 
share at the beginning of the year their personal goal, their financial goal, and their professional goal. And the personal goal, like eight times out of 10, has to do with fitness or weight goals. And uh, so again, I, I don't think you should obsess about a certain weight, but about eating healthy and exercising and, and all that. Anyway, we digress. Let's jump in. <laughs> that could be a whole podcast in and of itself on goal setting, but uh, it is the beginning of the year. And, you know, let's let's make this call to action at the end of the podcast. If you're listening and there's something, and I hope there is, that Tim and I share that you think, God, I should put that into practice at my organization, we'll make it a goal or make it, you know, be purposeful and intentional for it so that this podcast isn't just inspirational, but something that you take action on. I'd love to hear what that is and what you do. Let me give uh, some context. So Tim and I have known each other casually for a long time. Um, we, we swim in the same pools together, and I was at Serious Decisions many, many years ago. I don't, I'm sure most of you know the Serious Decisions conferences and the Serious Decisions company. And the Serious Decisions conferences have really diverse tracks of content, mostly around marketing and demand generation and marketing operations. And back then, Tim was doing a session on messaging, which is certainly what Corporate Vision's uh, passion is. And I was walking by the room. You've all been in a conference where you're, what's the next session I should go to? And this is one, you know, like a two o'clock session that I didn't really have mapped out because I didn't think I'd be going to one at that time. And I walked by, and Tim, what you've got on the whiteboard, I can still remember it, was these three circles. And then you had created them into a Venn diagram. And right in the middle of that Venn diagram, uh, you were coloring all these different wedges, and you talked about the parity wedge and the value wedge, and it caught my attention, and I snuck in the back door and sat down there, and I'm like, God, this is really, really great, and you went on to talk about neuroscience and brain science, and I'm like, wow, he and I share a lot of the same passion. So it's very cool that many years later, we're finally here on the podcast uh, together. Um, could you give a little bit of background on, on corporate visions before we jump into talking about personalization? I think it'd be helpful for... Uh, the audience to know if they're not familiar with you guys, um, who you are, what you do. Yeah, sure. And I appreciate that. One of the things we do do is help companies with their messaging and, and underpinning it are science backed messaging frameworks where we actually do exclusive original research. Uh, we, we build our messaging frameworks on the foundation of existing science you find it in the clinical journals, right? The neuroscience of marketing and sales, the social psychology of marketing and sales, or the behavioral economics of, science, of selling and marketing. So we look at existing science, but what we find is most of those are in clinical journals. They're conducted by professors, and the audience they test is usually undergraduates, convicts, and gamblers. <laughs> and so we, we're, we're like, well, maybe your customers are two of the three of those. But um, we, we actually then run simulations. We impanel would-be B2B buyers and put them in a scenario and then test different messaging approaches and, and, and monitor and track and, and produce uh, results, right? And, and so we get to say with a level of confidence, hey, this science is true for undergraduates and it's also true for in the b2b environment and then we bring forward frameworks that marketers and salespeople use to craft their their conversations or their messaging and so we look at things from what we call the why change story where you're trying to disrupt a market and bump someone off their status quo yeah. or the why you story where you're trying to differentiate from your competitors whereas that's where the value wedge comes in that you were talking about but we don't just do customer acquisition. We, we do messaging for customer retention. We've researched and built a why stay framework 
for renewals and the Y Evolve framework for upgrade cells. And we're right now testing um, what I'm tentatively calling the Y I'm Sorry framework for how to deliver an apology after a service failure um, and, and try to recover in a way that you instill and inspire more loyalty than if you never had a failure before. So we do this and we come with confidence to the marketing side of the house who builds a lot of these messages. And then the sales side of the house who has to deliver these messages and help build stories and teach skills for those key moments of truth where your lips must move and value must be articulated and a message must do the heavy lifting. And we work with companies um, to, to craft their stories and, and, uh, and, if you will, perfect their skills. Cool. I, you know, I think I mentioned this to you uh, before we put a date on the calendar to do the podcast that I was going out to Disney World. This was a couple of weeks ago uh, to do a keynote. And the keynote was on the title of the keynote was The Power Between Your Lips. Uh, and it was really about the power of storytelling. And, you know, you and I both have tremendous passion for, like we said, the brain science and neuromarketing. And one of the slides you can picture is an actual bookshelf. And so what I did was, you know, teach frameworks for storytelling and, and, you know, examples like the hero's journey. I certainly talked about a lot of the neuromarketing principles and how to incorporate that into your messaging. But the one slide that I, I think is context for today was this bookshelf slide. And I had our graphics designer, you know, put the bookshelf and there's probably about 15 books on that bookshelf. And on, you know, the edges of the book where the title is, I gave examples of stories. This was to a whole bunch of um, academia, the, the marketers for universities and colleges. So the, the audience was about five or 600 people, and it was all about how they recruit students and alumni to the campus. And I was saying that, you know, you need a story for each of your marketing purposes. So like, you know, uh, your first year as freshman uh, was an example of a story. Um, living in the dorm, uh, getting involved in clubs and organizations. You know, I, I worked with them to suggest that there are these 10 to 15 different stories that you need on this virtual bookshelf that your, quote, marketing or salespeople uh, can just pull off the shelf and use and use consistently together. And when we hire people at DemandGen, uh, and bring new members of the team, we make sure they know the, how the company was founded, why the company was founded, and our purpose, and we have that bank of stories. So it was a great talk. It's one of my favorite. And it, you know, for a guy who leads a company that helps people with marketing operations and marketing technology, it's a great break for me, uh, Tim, to go out and talk about content and talk about messaging because I'm uh, equally passionate about it. I just don't spend the kind of time that, that you do on it. So you know, talk to me about... Um, this topic of personalization, because one of the things that I've certainly talked about and my team does in ABM is we talk about, you know, the, the content continuum, where on the very left side, the content that you create is very generic. It's not personalized at all. And on the right-hand side, it's, it's almost specific, like directly to them. And there's everything in between. And you shared some stuff with me uh, recently, some research that you guys conducted and tests that you did on personalization. So what are you, what are you finding out there? I mean, when you approach your clients and you're, you're helping them with messaging, talk to me about the, the personalization challenge, because I think it's hard. It's easy to, it's easy to frame up, but it's, it's actually hard to execute, at least in right. my experience. Right. We can frame it up in a super logical sounding way where everybody nods their head and they take a picture of the slide and they tweet it out. And then you go, no, wait a minute, there's really two things missing here, practical application and scalability. Yeah. 
And, and number two, any data to support your the opinion just shared, because nobody's really achieved this to any degree at some level. So we take as fact a lot of opinion, and we hear a lot of things and, and believe it because it sounds logically sound. Uh, but what we do at Corporate Visions is, is do the research and uncover a lot of what I like to call good intentions, but wrong instincts, where it feels right, seems like it should be right, and then when you actually do the testing and watch humans engage and watch the way they actually respond, you get something different. So there's a fundamental piece of behavioral economics that I like to bring up at this moment. It's called declared preference versus revealed preference. When you ask somebody something, they'll tell you, um, this, is, this is what I do. But if you actually watch them do it, you realize they do something different. So they declare a certain preference for something, but they reveal like they do something totally different. Mm. And, and so I'll give you a great example in some of our recent research around personalization. So one of the things we looked at recently was pronoun. Should you be using the, the word you in talking to a customer in your marketing and communications? Or should you be using the word we uh, sort of in the collective partnership sort of way? And um, it is our contention there's a difference in terms of what it evokes right inside the listener or reader's mind and what you're trying to accomplish. So we ask marketers and salespeople, please tell us what kind of phrasing you use and, and sort of why. And, and the majority said, we use we phrasing in order to create a feeling of mutual partnership and uh, we're in this together, blah, blah, blah. Then when we introduce the idea of what about you phrasing and the idea that it might transfer ownership to the listener, they all go, huh, well, that might actually be better. So the interesting thing is you always find people who think, who say, here's how we're doing it, but they think there's a better way. And, and so if you just ask how people are doing it, just because they're doing it doesn't make it right. I hope that, it's, that, that makes sense there. So then we went out and actually, so we found out what people were doing and what they thought they should be doing, and we found a difference. There's a tension there. So then we created a simulation where we put um, hundreds and hundreds of would-be buyers into a scenario where in different test conditions where they would review a message. Mm -hmm. um, in one case, they would either read the message like an email, or they would listen to the message like it was a voicemail. Um, and then we did a more in-depth test where we did it more like a landing page. And in, in the test, we would test uh, the use of you phrasing to express how you should be considering this and uh, you could be experiencing that against we phrasing. And, and all the good reasons for we phrasing. Uh, we experience this with our customers. We'll do this together. And, and simply, if, if I could you know, give you an example, yeah. um, you, re you realize that it's just the, the swapping of the words, actually. So, for example, um, you might have an email that says, there are things we can do today to increase our business and marketing agility, meaning like there are things we as companies can do today to increase our businesses and marketing agility versus there are things you can do today to increase your business and marketing agility. And you would think, you would think that um, it's obvious, uh, maybe not, but uh, again, the majority of the people will use the word we in that case, and when they talk, they use the word we even greater percentage than when they write, because they're trying to build this rapport. And it turned out when, when we did the research, it was uh, amazing in that you phrasing 
causes people to feel personally responsible to solve their problem 21, at a 20, 21% higher rate than if you use the word we. So if you're trying to get your audience to feel personally responsible to solve for the problem you're talking about, talk about it in the you phrased condition versus the we phrased condition. If I say it a different way, you will reduce their feeling personal resp personally responsible by 21% by using the word we. So the collective partnership word we is far less effective right. at trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And one more stat I'll give you. When we, when we measured how strongly they felt about taking action, which is what you want them to do in an email, the, the email that was you phrased generated a 13% higher rate in terms of the strength of their feelings about taking action versus the emails that were we phrased. And we saw the same thing then in verbal and in landing pages. So the bottom line that we discovered and we asked multiple questions and every time you phrasing one is that you phrasing outperforms we phrasing essentially in every category that we measured right in particular the ones that relate to taking action and taking personal ownership which is the absolute key in personalization so choosing a pronoun and swapping one little word can have a dramatic effect on their willingness and to take action and their feelings of personal ownership so I give you that as just like one sort of counterintuitive example where people are doing it one way. They think, eh, I might not be doing it right, but I'm doing it this way anyways. And then the research comes out and says, you know, for all the reasons you maybe thought you were doing it right, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And, and huh. this, is, this is the most powerful. So we've done many research studies like this, but I thought that one would be a good one to kick off with because if you're going to make a, a resolution this year to personalize your email in a more effective way, why not take an easy one? Just replace the word we with the word you and give yourself a 21% bump um, in terms of people's feelings that um, they must do something sure. about this. I talked about that actually in the talk because I, I after I was explaining all the different uh, types of frameworks that you could use for storytelling, I get into a little bit of the, the chemistry and the voodoo stuff where I talked about you know how to release you know, basically becoming a drug dealer uh, and releasing chemicals in your audience's brain, whether that's dopamine or oxytocin. And then I follow that up with talking about some of the neuromarketing stuff. And you just hit one of them, which is, you know, we as people, and I'm saying we meaning the collective everybody, or, or I could say you are an animal and you were born with a fight or flight instinct, right, to survive. And the word you, right, really awakens your, your listening because it is so personal. And uh, I know that, you know, the folks at Apple have studied neuromarketing and, and are trained when they deliver their presentations. There was one that I show in some of my talks where they were introducing the Apple Watch. And one of the product managers was describing the capabilities of the Apple Watch. And he used the word you 22 times in about 90 seconds. So if you do the math on that, he was saying... So you can have an Apple Watch right here on your wrist, and every time you get a notification, you will feel, and he keeps going on and on, and he used you many, 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 many times, because, right, we are listening to, does the information that person's sharing, is that going to help me survive? Is that going to help me find food? And it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, so let's continue yeah. on that. If we're tuned in at an individual level, wouldn't that suggest that personalization about us specifically would always would always win, and I I know you and I have had some conversations where that's not always always the case, right? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting that, right, the pronoun seems really important um, to invoke imagination. That's the science behind this. And Cialdini, in his original research and his first book, Influence, talked about the concept of invoking imagination, getting yourself to see yourself doing the thing. Um, we becomes ambiguous at that point. There's nothing concrete about it, and it keeps you at arm length. When you say you, it transfers ownership, causes somebody to try it on, and invokes their imagination, which is then causes more processing. Once their imagination is provoked, they process harder, which is what you want them to do. You don't want them to ignore your message. You want them to start cogitating on it, right? Well, so we did another study then in the area of personalization because ABM is such a hot topic, and you've talked about it and written about it, and personalization is a big deal there. And the, the premise under ABM is, is it's in the phrase, account-based marketing. And, and there's this push to message to personas or to someone personally, which is often driven by their title, role, responsibility, and things associated with that. Or at least you know, we do some research on their company and speak specifically to that account or that company. Um, or in, it, I would argue, in worst case scenario, um, build a message for their vertical industry, right? Their market segment. Yeah. Because you got to do, do something to make it personal to them. Well, some of these things are harder to do, harder to scale, require more work, like doing some persona-oriented uh, opening that connects to what they are and who they are and what they do and makes it really relevant to them and their responsibility, um, takes some specific work. Doing some work around a company uh, and trying to get something specifically tailored to that company that's meaningful to them versus something specific to an industry you, know, you build a story for an industry, you can share that with 100 companies in that industry. Right. You build a message around a company, that's a one. You know, you only get to use that once and go back and do that same work again. And so I had this question. Is there a law of diminishing returns? Are we simply just assuming that deeper and deeper personalization that's more and more specific to that account is actually helpful? So the study we did was around, uh, to be honest, it was cold, very cold ABM. So no, no warmed up here. It was find 30 contacts in a target company that we've had no contact with ever before mm -hmm. and divide them up and do some personal persona driven intro, some company specific research we did and or industry. So think of three categories, right? Yeah. Um, and so um, we did this in, in across 7,000 contacts. So we did 7,000 contacts divided by these treatments and then we looked at open rates, and then we looked at click-through rates, and then we looked at the meeting scheduled. And the winner, in terms of the, the open rates, which is sometimes a measure we use, was the company and the personal uh, combined with the company. So they got the highest opens when you did something that seemed to be the most specific to the person. So let me make sure I, I, I make sure that not only myself, but everyone sees it. So I, I remember the research. And, and so these campaigns, you're saying, when the personalization aspect had to do around the person and the company name, like, you know, David, comma, some interesting info about demand gen, you know, I'm, I'm making something up, but that's what you mean is like, when, right. the, when the personalization had to do with the person and their company, um, that was right. one test, then you did industry, and personal. And so 
um, you were able to run all these different uh, different tests, which uh, I'm going to let you continue to share the results and the findings. What's fascinating, uh, you know, I think when we get to the uh, next next turn in this journey is so many people really gear their website content and the tools and technologies to do personalization at a personal or company level, right? It's it's inserting the person's name or inserting the company's name and that type of stuff. And that, you know, is a dependency on certain data variables, right, in your database, it just, just to be able to do that. And then the other factors that you used were what? Industry and what was there? I think there was a fourth, correct? Yeah, so we had, so look at it this way. We did industry only. So again, the test was the opening problem statement was what we what we tested. Okay. The solution statement, the solution statement was the same in all four test conditions. But the opening is what changed. So in one case on one track, it was an opening based on some industry facts and some benchmarking data around what's going on in their industry around this particular problem. In the second track, it was company specific and we talked about things that your company based on what we could research and tied them back to the problem statement. The third track, we combined a personal opening that talked about their persona, their responsibility, their job, Mm -hmm. and the company. So that was personal plus company. Fourth treatment was personal plus industry. So one thing we didn't test was just personal persona alone. So I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. But it was industry only, company only, personal plus company, and personal plus industry. And so what we discovered along those four treatments is the highest open rates were the ones attached to company-specific information, so company only or personal plus company. So the average open rate, uh, that was the winning, those were the two winning tracks. But at some point, open rates are are not a highly predictive measure of things, as you're about to see. When we looked at click-through rates, in fact, it was the other two that had higher click-through rates. So industry-only treatment outperformed company-only treatment by 17%. Mm-hmm. So we got a 17% increase in click-through rates with the industry opening as opposed to the company-specific opening. So that's a big deal. But what's interesting is when you take the company opening and add a personal touch or persona, right. industry, out, uh, industry outperformed the personal plus company by 24%. So here you are doing like a double-dip personal persona-based tied to a company thing we found and the industry outperformed it by 24%. And the industry only outperformed the personal plus industry by 12%. So the clear winner in click-through rates was the industry-only information. When you get to the meeting set, this is where it really gets interesting, is industry-only set the same number of meetings as personal plus industry. And it was 50% higher than either the company treatment or the personal plus company. So it was essentially a tie between industry and personal plus industry. So what I'm netting out here is that the most powerful form of personalization in a cold ABM program, somebody who doesn't know you, is industry personalization, which significantly outperforms company-specific or persona-based. And, and so what that says is, hey, maybe we're taking way too much time and creating something that can't even scale or at least if, if we build it once, it's really hard to maintain it. Right. Um, all these different personas and all these different company messages, when in reality, in at least in a cold prospecting ABM setting, industry performs significantly better when it comes to something more meaningful like click-through and really meaningful like, meaningful like meeting scheduled. 
I mean, I know this was one one project that you did, but if this data and the findings that you shared, um, you know, are, are relevant across uh, what we're trying to do in marketing in different forms, it has a really profound impact on our strategy, right? Because to your point is, if your company serves a couple different industries, that's a very narrow, uh, much easier to do personalization. So like if I'm a recipient of content, let's say I was a, a financial planner, and you're sending me content and maybe personalizing it in some way. If you're talking about the company that I work at, you know, Tim, maybe I'm, I'm suspect of that information because you're talking about my company that I work at. But if you're providing me information about an industry that I work in, then that may be very interesting to me from the standpoint of I'm getting informed, I'm getting educated. You have something about an industry that I work in could include my competition or, or could include knowledge. And that's a lot easier, I think, to create content for than trying to create content that is so highly personalized to the person or to the company. I, I wonder if you want to, you know, create a concert of this, right? Because you talked about open rates where, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to overvalue open rates. However, if we don't get past the open, we have no chance of success on the click-through or even getting that appointment set. So I wonder if you would, if there was meaningful enough uh, data to show, well, use X to get the open, but use Y approach, you know, maybe more of the industry approach within the content to get that better click-through rate and to get the appointments. Any, any thoughts on combining the different approaches at the different levels of, of marketing, which, which what you're saying is it's, it's clear just by the double-digit percentages that if you're going to personalize content, personalize it from an, an industry and somewhat personal perspective. What are your thoughts about layering it, though? Yeah, I think what happens is when we saw we layered personal with industry, we got the second-highest results compared to industry only and, and in terms of click-through. Mm-hmm. And we got... Um, an equal number of meetings scheduled. But for personal plus industry, we got a higher open rate, right? One was 20% industry only, and the other was 24.5% for personal plus industry. So um, if you want to look at it that way, now the click-through went down a little bit, but the meetings held. So personal plus industry, I would support that. Um, But I think the thing that I would say is if the personal, it requires a, a heavy lift, um, you're not that you're not going to do that much damage if you just do industry only. Is my point if it if it becomes unsustainable. Um, and here's what I think is is the case. Um, to your point earlier, the the you're supposed to add value to these people's lives. And when you try to know something about them that they already know, you're just sort of telling them something they already know. Right. And if you try to tell them something about their company. You're going to do it from some public documentation, but there's chances you know less about their company than they do. And, and now you create some skepticism because you told them something and tried to tell them something about their company. And they're like, yeah, well, that's the public story, but you don't work inside this organization. So at some point, the only way you actually add value to them is by telling them the thing they don't know, which is what's going on in their industry with other companies or people like them. And so if you think about it, I, I will take two emotional words, skepticism and voyeurism. Which one would you rather provoke inside of your audience or recipient? The skepticism that says, how come you act like you know me and I know you don't know me because I don't know you? And how come you say this about my company when you've never been inside my company and you're just regurgitating the, the very public veneer we put in our annual report, right? And right. yet when I talk about the fact that I maybe work with 
a dozen companies in your industry. And what we continue to see from that are these kinds of challenges and these kinds of um, opportunities that might be missed. You go, wait a minute, that I do need to know because I don't work there and I don't get a chance to compare notes with those companies. So what I think is, is, is actually too much personalization at the wrong time. It, it evokes a healthy, if not uh, sarcastic skepticism yeah, on the part sure. of your audience versus uh, invoking a little bit of, of voyeurism. Like they want to know what's going on uh, at others and be able to compare themselves and benchmark themselves. That insight um, drives and adds way more value than trying to know them when you don't. I hope that made sense. It does make sense. And, you know, I, I did a podcast with uh, Jill Rowley uh, last year, did very, very well. And, you know, she's, she's one of the self-proclaimed uh, queens of, of social selling, very talented. And she talks about, you know, if you're reaching out to people on LinkedIn, go do your homework, learn about them, learn about, you know, their interests and their hobbies and that type of stuff. And so let's, I want to make sure, like, to compartmentalize that. That's rapport building, right? That's doing some homework and knowing about the person, their role, where they work, and that type of stuff. What we're really talking about, what you're sharing is, when you're creating content and actually messaging, uh, maybe it's customer success stories and that type of stuff, to really focus on the industry perspective and share information about what's happening in the industry and add value there, as opposed to you know, trying to... Um, inform somebody about stuff that they either they already know just to either, you know, impress them with your homework. It, it's not a value is the, is the point that I'm making. If you're telling right. stuff they already know about their company, you're not adding value. And, you know, you guys wrote the book on value conversations, right? And, and you wrote uh, the first book that I read, which I think I uh, picked up after the conference, Conversations That Win the Complex Sale. So, you know, you guys are so focused on, on messaging. Big takeaway today is make it a little bit I would say easier on yourself in your marketing, which is learn about the industry and what's happening in the industry and bring that value to the conversations with your prospects if you're in sales or if you're in marketing and generating content, focus on personalization at an, at an industry perspective. That makes sense? Is that, uh, am, I, am I tracking? Yeah, in fact, uh, yes. But what I would say is don't be that person who provides generic industry data that comes from outside sources that anyone could copy. The thing that really makes you valuable is telling them about what you've been able to collect and understand from that industry because of your being in that industry. So if if you're saying, oh, a third-party analyst firm says this, it's like you don't get a lot of credit for quoting the same analyst firm that everybody already has heard from, right. as well as probably a quote and a stat that's been overused and abused. You get credit for sharing an insight based on some data that you can generate from the clients you work with in that industry and some interesting findings that you can uncover in that industry and sharing that. So just to be clear that your industry message has to be able to tell a story of your experience and what you've uncovered in that industry, working with others who look like them and the challenges they're going through or the opportunities they've been missing um, versus uh, Forrester says, right? So I just want to be clear that there's a little bit of work, but again, you do that work once for an industry right. and now you can use it on all, all kinds of prospects as opposed to doing uh, the personal uh, and the industry-level work. Well, good. I'm good. sorry, uh, company-level work. Good tips. I, I appreciate that. You, um, you've you got a webinar coming up, right? On It's Tuesday, February 19th, if I recall. Um, yeah. And yeah. that's going to be on personalization, right? Getting getting personal on, on personalization. Um, if anybody wants to attend that webinar, I encourage you to do so. Tim's going to go deeper on the topic 
February 19th, Tuesday, 11 Pacific, 2 o'clock Eastern. Probably the easiest way to find that is to just go to corporatevisions.com or search for Getting Personal About Personalization. Uh, and you guys will go deeper on that topic. And I'm sure if somebody can't attend live, but they register, you guys will release uh, release that that to them. Um, anything else, Tim, that we should be taking away from the, the recent research you just did on, on personalization? I encourage everybody at the beginning of the program, you know, take an action item, you know, from this. Uh, and if you're responsible for messaging or content or, you know, doing your own outreach, uh, think about how you can take some of the ideas that Tim shared uh, about personalization and and put them into practice. Um, also learn more about neuromarketing and neuroscience. I think it will really help you up uh, with your content game, and there's some really good... Um, well, you guys provide a lot of content in that area as well, but I think that's something that we in marketing today should not overlook is is the brain science behind messaging and uh, communication. Um, anything else, Tim, that, that uh, might be some good helpful takeaways for folks? Yeah, I think, you know, just an easy way to remember it is, um, you know, swap you for we. And basically the way you remember that is look at your content. And if you're we, we, weeing all over yourself, then you, you got a bad message. And um, see, that's unforgettable. You can't unhear that. That's, no, that's, that's the, the way. <laughs> but I would also say if you're looking for more on science and brain science in particular, brain science and how to apply it across business in general, um, we were actually excited to find out in January that Harvard Business Review put out a special issue called The Brain Science Behind Business, and we published one of my articles in there. So HBR's special issue on the brain science behind business. You might want to look that up because if you start digging on brain science, um, you're going to see all kinds of applications for it across business from leadership to change management to selling and marketing like we've been talking about today. As as a... Another takeaway, I'm going to encourage people to do this. Go to your website and read your homepage. And I've got one up right now, and they're a client, so I'm not going to say their name because I'll get in trouble. But are you ready for this, Tim? I'm on there. I'm going to substitute the name of the company with the word Acme, all right? Uh, and it says on their homepage. Be careful. <laughs> here we go. Acme is helping enterprises around the world solve their biggest challenges. Okay? So it's talking about the company and not about the person. Um, if I go further into the content on their website, it is talking about them, several different uh, paragraphs talking about them. See how Acme combines blank, blank, blank. I won't say too much or it'll give away who it is. Um, there's no you messaging in any of this. It's all about them. Acme helps organizations in all industries achieve extraordinary success. Uh, so just take a look at your own content on your website, and in your messaging, and if it's about you, it's the wrong you. It's got to be about them, is Tim's point, and uh, I can't underscore that enough in my own experience. So, Tim, thank you for sharing that. I hope you guys uh, think about your content and your personalization. I know some of you, many of you are working on ABM strategies and know that, you know, engagement content is so critical there. Well, um, you, you took away a lot today in terms of the importance of using industry-oriented case studies and examples of how your company helps people in various industries and bring that value to them. Tim, I'll see you soon in Atlanta. I know we're getting together to catch up some more. I look forward to that. 
And for everyone on the podcast, uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope your year is going well. Got some great additional episodes coming to you uh, this month. So if you haven't hit that subscribe button, make sure that you do. Even though I post on LinkedIn almost every episode or every episode that's coming out, I know some of you are not on LinkedIn. So a lot of great content gets hidden away in your phone or online if you don't subscribe to the program. So uh, do that if you haven't already. And Tim, my best to you and the team, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, David. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. We'll catch you on the next one. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing. 